Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and I'm joined today by Gabor Schering, author of The Retreat of Liberal Democracy, Authoritarian Capitalism, and the Accumulative State in Hungary, published in 2020 by Palgrave Macmillan. As four years of Donald Trump's presidency draws to a close, his opponents have given thanks that he was too lazy and incompetent to use the powers and agencies at his disposal. If he had, he could have used two terms to create an illiberal democracy, a country that maintains democratic trappings, but with a charismatic leader in charge of a hegemonic party, politicized permanent institutions, and a structurally split opposition struggling to counter a nationalist narrative coming from the top. What he should have done was follow the career of Viktor Orban, Hungary's prime minister for the past decade, and the man who coined the term illiberal democracy in 2014. Over the last 12 months, a number of books have been published in English attempting to explain Orban's hybrid model of democracy and authoritarianism, including The Orban Regime by Andras Kurosheni and Orban Land by Lesser Skut. I will be interviewing these authors in the coming months, but today Dr. Schering will kick off our exploration of Orbanism with his economic and political study of what he calls the accumulative state. Gabor is an economist and sociologist who is currently a Marie Curie Fellow at Bocconi University in Milan and was a Green Member of the Hungarian Parliament from 2010 to 2014. Gabor, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. This is a great opportunity to discuss both the book and uh, and the state of democracy in, in Hungary and probably also beyond. Yeah, well, thank you for joining. Um, at the core of your book is this concept that you borrow from Alan Wolf's lim- uh, Limits of Legitimacy, the idea of an accumulative state and how it develops as a compromise between established and emerging classes. Can you explain the idea and how it applies to Hungary's 30-plus year transition from socialism? Yeah, so indeed this is uh, perhaps the uh, central uh, conceptual innovation um, in the book. Um, so to, to, to step uh, a little bit back, uh, one step back, it um, there are a lot of uh, narratives out there about uh, populism, illiberalism, both in Hungary and, and, uh, and you know, Europe, but you mentioned Trump in the introduction, um, that look at various uh, dimensions. Mostly you will uh, read about uh, politicians themselves. So when it comes to Hungary, uh, there are great articles and, in fact, books about Orban himself. Hmm. And, of course, it's crucial to understand his character and what he's doing. But, you know, politicians are never operating in a social vacuum. And then the other thing that you very often encounter is uh, articles about culture, like people's uh, so, so, so-called demand for anti, anti-liberal or illiberal uh, politics. And there's an element of truth to this also. Like uh, in my book, uh, myself, I look at the culture of nationalism 
But the problem itself in this uh, is that, uh, as I show in the book, uh, people did not want to uh, destroy democracy. In fact, they supported liberal values, uh, liberal institutions more than in uh, most other countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, so culture itself, people said it is itself, does not explain what has happened to Hungary. Um, and uh, you, you don't really read that much about economic elites and their, and their role and about the dislocation of the working class. And these are the two key processes that I am analyzing in, 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 in the book. When you read about the economic elites, then sometimes you again read some missing there are some mis misleading arguments out there saying that uh, basically, except for a small group of uh, friends and members of uh, Viktor Orban's family, so often called the, the cronies, everyone else is losing out. Mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's what you most often read in the news about corruption, grand corruption in Hungary, which is part of the system. But uh, here comes uh, the idea of the accumulative state, uh, which in a sense... Uh, captures is meant to capture, as you very well put it, the compromise between the three most important factions of the power coalition. Uh, so this is nationalist politicians, Fidesz and Viktor Orban, uh, the a, a rising group of domestic capitalists, which includes cronies, but goes much beyond them. So it, it's a larger group of domestic businesses. And also transnational corporations, most importantly, uh, German manufacturing companies, but not just German manufacturing companies, uh, foreign investors, especially in, in, in export, technological intensive export sectors are the third most important uh, pillars of this regime. And what Viktor Orban did basically was emancipating domestic capitalists from their previous position, which was... Uh, uh, very much a subordinate compared to transnational capital uh, before 2010. And um, that's his most important achievement. He did not uh, reduce Hungary's dependence uh, altogether on foreign investment, but makes more room for domestic capitalists. And for this, um, he receives their support, as I've said, a very large, overwhelming majority of the domestic business elite supports him, in addition to most of the foreign investors. So what the accumulative state does is in, it, it introduces uh, various policies and institutional structures designed to accelerate capital accumulation or the creation of wealth supporting both uh, all three segments of the elite. So the politicians, obviously, they generate their own wealth. Domestic businesses, domestic capitalists uh, are generating immense wealth these days in Hungary. And the foreign businesses are enjoying a very favorable uh, institutional environment. Uh, Hungary has the lowest uh, tax, uh, corporate tax rate in Europe. Uh, overall, very uh, uh, lax uh, labor regulation, uh, uh, unemployment benefit that lasts only three months, etc., etc. Austerity. So all the uh, what you might call neoliberal uh, policies, uh, most of them are still there on the lower band, preferred by foreign businesses, especially. So this is what the cumulative state does, and. Uh, 
as you might imagine, this creates a lot of tensions socially. Uh, Hungary is now the most unequal country in Central and Eastern Europe, a, a region which was usually heralded as a region with low inequality because of a uh, because of inter welfare policy interventions into the into the economy. But this is not so much true uh, for Hungary anymore, which is now more unequal than the Czech Republic or or uh, or Slovakia. So inequality has been rapidly increasing under Viktor Orbán. And this is a very conscious and de deliberate uh, uh, policy effort uh, uh, from the side of the government to redistribute money upwards. And my argument in the book is that this regime uh, would not be sustainable politically under normal liberal democratic circumstances. So what Viktor Orban does uh, is two things. First, he restructured the institutional landscape to make the regime more sustainable. Um, like uh, conquering the media, conquering uh, independent institutions. So this is what I call in the book institutional authoritarianism. And he also, uh, you know, introduces policies and, and engages in a kind of politics, which is more about uh, discourses and, and uh, creating an appearance of uh, fighting for the people. But this is basically, in a sense, duping, especially lower middle classes and, and working classes, because they are losing out under Orban. So you might call this populism or authoritarian populism, where, you know, it's uh, about Viktor Orban fighting migrants um, and uh, trying to uh, legitimize his regime uh, by presenting himself as the grand protector of the nation. So these two sides of authoritarianism, the, the, the soft side and the, and the institutional hard side, I think are there to serve this very unequal and polarizing political economic uh, regime that I term the, the, the accumulative state in, in the book. And it's a kind of authoritarian capitalism, which is a more broader term. You know, you can uh, observe authoritarian varieties of capitalism all around the world. Uh, China being the most uh, famous uh, example, and, and Hungary is, is is one version of this kind of uh, authoritarian capitalism. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting take because uh, we all read about how um, you know he was part of the the resistance generation um, and then turned authoritarian over time. But in your book, you you talk about it much more fundamentally than that. That his first government. He, he continued this uh, economic policy of favoring transnational capital. Um, and it was only after he went back into opposition that you say, I'll find the quote, you say, um, Fidesz's efforts at building an economic hinterland were premeditated, systematic, and aggressive. And so he, he, he made this pitch to, the, to, to, to national capital. And you have this very interesting chapter where you talk about how um, – Billionaires essentially had been left-leaning uh, in the first decades of uh, of capitalism, and then once he came into power the second time from 2010 onwards, you saw this very sudden move in political allegiance among among the billionaire class. Um, so yes, could 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 you expand on those thoughts? Yeah. Um, 
So left leaning in Hungary and in, in, in my book mostly is a is a is a category referring to political positions, not necessarily ideological or, or policy content. So left leaning means basically closer in terms of networks to the Socialist Party and the smaller liberal party in Hungary. The Socialist Party being the successor state of the successor of the state Socialist Party. But in effect, uh, they presided over some of the most avant-garde uh, neoliberal policies like the privatization of uh, pensions uh, and attempted, but then ultimately failed attempt to privatize health insurance. Um, and also uh, in general favoring privatization uh, uh, methods that, uh, that favor foreign investment as opposed to domestic capitalists. And domestic capitalists have nevertheless been able to you know, secure some foothold through privatization and, 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 the, and all, uh, some of them just generally accumulating wealth on the market. And they have been also lobbying the left-wing government, so the Socialist Party and the smaller Liberal Party, to, to change its attitude and, and, and introduce, you know, traditional developmental state policies or industrial policies that, uh, that are meant to, to, to protect domestic capitalists against foreign competition and, and to generate local value chains. And, uh, but, the, but the left-leaning elite or the socialist liberal coalition was not really willing to do this. So they were very much uh, governing in coalition with foreign investment and with a group of technocrats. Part of those people are uh, politicians, part of those are economists who were very, very influential. So this this was the previous power elite before 2010, technocrats, foreign investors, and and mostly the, the, the left liberal elite. But Fidesz also was part of this uh, power structure. Um, when they were for, first in government, they accepted the terms of, of, of the game. But as you say, uh, and I show in the book that uh, in, in the 2000s, Orban sensed that there is a growing frustration among uh, domestic capitalists. And whereas in the 90s, these domestic capitalists, some of them were able to uh, uh, you know, gain wealth through privatization. And it was mostly uh, managers coming from the socialist times. That's why uh, some of them, or the majority of the economic elite in the 90s, was more kind of affiliated to the uh, uh, to the socialist party, so so it was clearly the socialist leaning uh, uh, billionaires, not in terms of policy, but in terms of sheer party politics that were dominant in the in the nineties. But nevertheless, there was a growing frustration among them that it, that, that there is like too much too many policies favoring transnational corporations, and basically, domestic companies cannot do do anything. Uh, that was their perception. And, and it was Fidesz and Viktor Orban who sensed that there's there's an opportunity and they basically said, okay, enough of this ideological uh, uh, opposition to, to, to so-called former socialist uh, managers and let's let's embrace the economic elite as it is uh, and, and start to offer them a new kind of economic uh, nationalist uh, policies to, to, to help them accelerate their capital in return for them supporting me and supporting my party. And in my book, I show that there's various 
groups to to the economically to the domestic business class the, the there's a there's a group that is very closely allied with fides that these are the people whom you can mostly read about in the news you know involved in grand corruption and these people very often serve direct political purposes so they would buy up uh, media outlets and 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 run basically finance political campaigns but there are other groups as well like uh, ideologically committed conservatives who who have also been traditional playing an important role in in establishing right-wing media uh, and they are not you know they they, they are not cronies they are not corrupt in a sense uh, as the as the first group is and there is a group of emerging capitalists uh, numerically this is the biggest uh, among the right-leaning uh, billionaires in Hungary and they are the kind of people who were lobbying both left and right-wing governments to 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 protect them against transnational corporations uh, and it was fides who 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 who, who in fact promised this in 2000s in in opposition and then started to deliver on 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 his promise uh once in in power in in the 2010s so this is why i i think the most important achievement of Viktor Orbán is uh, that he kind of emancipated domestic uh, capitalists, so renegotiated the terms of the deal that the political elite uh, made with transnational corporations in the 90s, where, to, to simplify, it was all about transnational capital. And, and Fidesz said, OK, you can keep your dominant positions in, 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 in the in industry, especially technological intensive industry and, and industries that are crucial for exports, but we will make room for domestic capitalists in other areas like retail, uh, banking, media, uh, etc. So it's a, it's a new deal for, for, so to speak, a new deal for, for domestic capitalists. And, um, and, uh, and the most important uh, tools and policies designed to, to, to accelerate capital accumulation are policies uh, that you know hurt lower middle classes, working classes, and, and precarious strata of society. Yeah, uh, and the impact, as you point out in the book, is not just or the impact of the this split between transnational capital and and national capital is is a split in the working class as well. So uh, again, I have a quote here. You say. Um, it it causes social polarization between skilled workers working for foreign companies in large towns and low-skilled laborers working for domestic enterprises in small towns. And you, uh, to to back this up, you carried out more than 80 interviews with workers in four Rust Belt towns. These were all people who'd been adults at the time of transition, so they were able to compare the two. And what's very striking is how nostalgic people are for for the past and you you, you have this uh, you you sort of narrow that down as being the result of of lost non-material benefits you know things like um, guaranteed holidays holiday homes uh, and and full employment obviously um do you think uh, and and what's also interesting there is that the these people seem to be, it seems to be embedded in their thought that it's the the old socialist party, the MSZP, that is almost 
personally responsible for for the, the negative aspects of this change, whereas Fidesz is not. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, um, yeah. So the the, the the empirical part of the book, as, as you say, has basically two two sides. One is is a new database, both quantitative and qualitative, on the economic elites. So I show how it changes numerically the composition, and also uh, I, I show the discourses and and the you know the lobby efforts of of, of business business groups. And the other side of the story is 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 basically how Orban constructs his his electoral majority, and there I think uh, workers left behind in these medium-sized industrialized towns play a crucial role. They they are not the only ones who are supporting Orban, but uh, they they are important to understand change and 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 dynamics. You know, it's like the same with Trump. Uh, these kind of workers in, in left, uh, left behind in, in the industrialized towns are not the most important supporters in terms of like, uh, you know, average income of, of Republican voters is still higher than, than the, the Democrats. But w- what was crucial for Trump's success in 2016 was his ability to, to attract disillusioned workers in a large number uh, who shifted regions from Democrats to, to, the, to the Republicans. And you can see, you, you could observe the same in Hungary. So whereas in the 90s and, and, and early 2000s, so basically 2002, uh, the Socialist Party was overrepresented among, among workers. And these small and medium-sized industrialized towns acted as the regional strongholds. Of, of the Socialist Party until the early 2000s, this has changed dramatically uh, in, the, in the 2000s. It has already started to change before the financial crisis. So it's not only about the financial crisis, but more about the exhaustion of, of this uh, market economy model or capitalist model that Hungary, Hungary has been following um, after after state state socialism, and and as you, as you say, uh, a lot of workers are nostalgic. But this is not you know just uh, 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 you know it's not just older people let's say uh, who are nostalgic, but also younger people who have, who 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 you know had some some experience, but it, but they are still sort of capable to work and. Theoretically, should should have been capable to to to, to make a decent living under uh, under the new capitalist regime, but we're we're not. In fact, in fact, there's a generational gap because uh, housing was one of the most important services provided by the socialist state, and and of course access was unequal, and and the state was not able to produce enough houses. But still, housing was secure for most people. Uh, families could, you know, apply for 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 houses uh, basically, and and they they got it either for free or they got subsidized loans from from companies. So if you were if you grew up under socialism, you had no problem living somewhere. Now this dramatically changed uh, with the transition, where housing, social housing, was 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 completely prioritized, and it it, it was suddenly the responsibility of people to to secure houses, which led to 
uh, massive indebtedness, and whereas elder generations had had their had their homes, the newer generations uh, had to amass uh, massive uh, debts, and 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 a very large segment of the population by the two, second part of half of the two thousands was because of this indebtedness unable to face unexpected financial expenses. Mm. So um, that's that's one crucial uh, part of of why people. Uh, grew this illusion. Another is if you look at uh, employment in Hungary uh, has been chronically low until uh, basically 2012. Uh, so basically the employment collapsed after uh, state socialism and, and remained low uh, uh, until the end of the uh, 2000s. Uh, the employment rate was the lowest in, in, in Europe and, and one of the lowest uh, in, in, in the whole OECD region in, in, in Hungary. So economists call this uh, jobless growth. And, uh, and I also refer to, to, to my other research area, which is the political economy of health. And, and, and this, this aspect I find is, is very uh, powerful uh, to capture the lived experience of economic change. And in the 90s, uh, there was what, what public health people call the post-socialist mortality crisis uh, hitting uh, Hungary, leading to uh, several tens of thousands of uh, excess deaths in, 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 the, in the 90s, which mostly hit uh, middle-aged uh, working class people, especially working class men. And as you can imagine, this was the most severe, again, in small and medium size, uh, uh, deindustrialized uh, towns. So this created uh, these areas that, that were previously uh, leaning left because, because uh, uh, these were towns that grew under state socialism, but then collapsed uh, uh, during the 90s. Uh, people still had some belief in the Socialist Party un until basically 2002 when the party was flirting with social democratic ideas. But then it fully embraced uh, neoliberalism in, in the 2000s. And because of this, and because uh, they were basically the only dominant party that survived the tumultuous years of the uh, 20 years of the transition uh, intact, so to say, uh, and were already in power in 94, people associated them uh, with the power elite. Fidesz was elected to power only in 98. So they, they are also, also an ancient party in a sense that they originate from, from 89, but they were not in, in power until 98. Uh, so a large segment of the electorate thought that uh, the early years and the, and the mistakes that led to deindustrialization, rapid privatization, liberalization of the economy, the wipeout of jobs, the collapse of agriculture, the rapid growth in, 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 in inequalities. In fact, the, the mortality crisis in, in the early and mid-90s. Mid you know, Fidesz was not in power, was in opposition. So a lot of people believe that they are sort of a new force uh, and they would be able to... Um, to, 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 to lead to lead the country towards a new direction, to, to change the economy 
uh, and, and and correct the mistakes of of uh, of the post-socialist change. And this is what I found most striking in the in these eighty-two interviews: how economic disillusionment uh, was gradually uh, turned into a kind of nationalism among a, 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 a large part of the interviewees. And, and, and I think the reason for this is, is, is again, because there was no progressive or, or, or left, left-wing language to express their anger. I mean, you would think that, that inequality and this kind of economic dislocation is, is, is really a breeding ground for left-wing politics, but it was not because, it, as, as I've said, it was the left who presided over the most avant-garde uh, neoliberal policies. So there was also no left-wing symbolic culture there was no laughing subculture so to speak um and there was no language uh, other than the nationalism for people to say you know we we are disillusioned and we are unhappy and we want change and the way they would say it is we hungarians they wouldn't say we workers or we the working class or any kind of political identity that would be more you know, useful uh, for or, or that that would lend itself for for left wing politics, and then this was acted upon by Fidesz and then strengthened also once uh, Viktor Orban uh, uh, got in, into power in in 2010. Uh, so this kind of working class new nationalism is 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 crucial to understand the stability and 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 the legitimacy of of. Um, of Orban's regime. It's a kind of on-the-ground cultural change, uh, which, which to a certain degree leg- legitimizes uh, economic nationalism also, uh, but, but a cultural change that, that is very much uh, related to, to economic, economic disillusionment. And, and there's some change taking place uh, among the opposition, but until recently, um, you know, the dominant language and the identity of the opposition, uh, and and in fact the biggest parties of the opposition until now, is more kind of a technocratic, liberal language, a kind of centrist language, that is, I think, completely uh, detached from from the experience of of these working class electorates who were some years before uh, the most important uh, voter bloc behind the Socialist Party. And now they are completely wiped out from these uh, medium-sized industrial towns. So it's it's Fidesz. And then the second party in these towns is Jobbik, which is, you know, the the, the party that used to be radical right. It's, yeah. it's, it's now sort of a center right. And then, then come like around 10% or sometimes even less uh, the various uh, left-wing parties that exist. So it's the left has basically been completely wiped out from these towns, and it's only the biggest cities and the biggest towns. And until recently now, because of the corona crisis, it's changing again. But until recently, Fidesz could maintain its support among among even among the, the victims of, of his upward redistributive uh, economic policies and and the left, <laughs> interestingly, uh, could maintain its dominance uh, among 
among managers, most of them working for uh, transnational corporations and, you know, uh, educated workers working for transnational corporations and managers. These, 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 th- this was the only strata, sort of uh, upper middle class, uh, big city voters uh, where the left uh, was, was uh, basically dominant. If, if the opposition... So if the, if the opposition is going to have a chance of defeating him in 2022 it will it have to will it have to do what you sort of suggested there which is to for the for the left and liberal parties to focus on the big cities and for Jobbik to be the main challenger in these sort of rust belt areas is is that a is that a workable coalition well, because Jobbik um, is changing and because parties are learning the need to cooperate and because voters are now also sort of warming to this grand opposition coalition between, you know, a post-fascist radical right party, liberals and, and, and the former socialist left, uh, this could work. And it's it's a very strange uh, sort of a uh, coalition, but that's the that's the political situation in in the country. And because uh, one of the institutional tools used by Orbán was was to rewrite the electoral law, uh, making Hungary much more similar to to a first past the post system than to a rep- proportional representation system. So. The Hungarian electoral system is not completely like the system in the UK, but is more like in the UK now than it was in, 10 years ago and much less like in, in, in Germany, which is more kind of a proportional system. And, and in this case, it's two dominant blocks, you know, the government and the opposition. And and now the opposition has has, has made an agreement to 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 form an electoral coalition for, for the 22 elections, so the upcoming national elections. And this this is the first important step. And uh, and yes, Jobbik could play an important role in attracting uh, um, this, this economically anger, angry uh, electorate too. But, you know, me personally, uh, I am... You know, I'm, I'm a bit worried for the long-term perspectives. A for the stability of such coalition. B uh, that you know uh, the left, if the left uh, is get get gets used to to a situation where it only talks to big city uh, upper middle class people, and 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 completely abandons. Uh, people like, you know, traditional working class people in, in, in smaller towns, then there won't be a laughing majority in, in the country in the next two decades. And I think that's that's a huge problem because Yobi could then at that any time say, you know, well, I'm, I'm a right-wing party and I'd rather go with Fidesz again. And, you know, Fidesz has implemented all the policies of Yobbik. And the only reason that Jobbik is now so staunchly opposed to Fidesz is, is because Fidesz attempted to basically politically kill Jobbik and, and, 
and alienated Jobbik big time because they saw Jobbik as, 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 as a major challenger party. And instead of forging an alliance with a party that is very close to them, uh, they, they alienated, alienated them. And, and now Jobbik is firmly embedded in, in the oppositional culture. And Jobbik voters themselves now accept something that they would not have accepted even five years ago, which is cooperation with the left and liberal parties. And what do you think Orban and Fidesz will do if they if they think they may lose in 2022? I mean, they have quite a lot to lose. Do, do you think there'll be another change in the electoral law or further changes in the institutions to, to make it more difficult for the opposition to win? Certainly. So there are already signs of this happening. So they, they, they changed the electoral law a few, few weeks ago at the end uh, of, of, of last year, making it uh, more difficult for the opposition to, to cooperate. And there are other things that they are doing, which is basically uh, doing the same thing, just getting more and more extreme uh, and, 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 and further and further away from democracy. Like uh, one of the most important things that they did recently was uh, uh, significantly reduce the financial autonomy of local governments. And, uh, you know, uh, local governments have been the last, some local governments, not, not the majority, but some local governments, like, for example, Budapest, which is the most important, big, biggest city in the country, uh, have been pockets of, of resistance. So that's where basically the opposition managed to survive in some of the cities, some of the local towns. And uh, Orban is reducing their financial autonomy, basically nationalizing uh, previously locally provided services and locally owned institutions, and also nationalizing taxes that were previously local taxes now are national taxes. So it's everything financially depends now on the government. And, 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 you know, there's not even a pretense for democracy anymore. Orban has announced that they are willing to compensate smaller local governments, smaller in Hungary means uh, overwhelmingly Fidesz, and, and the biggest ones, like big cities, uh, they would have to negotiate on a case-by-case basis so there won't be... Uh, uh, an autom- automatic mechanism to compensate for the loss of tax revenues, which means the big cities run by Fidesz mayors uh, have already received financial subsidies, whereas big cities run by the left are just uh, left to starve and, and uh, fend for themselves, which means basically Orban trying to, uh, uh, you know, alienate uh, local voters and, and try try to reduce the, the financial uh, to, to, of the opposition to to maneuver. So this is just one of the things that, that has been happening recently, but, but I'm quite sure that they will be able to come up with other creative uh, tools and measures to, to make the life of the opposition uh, Opposition harder, both in terms of the institutional structure, but also I think there will be another big campaign, like the campaign against migration was uh, a few years ago, which helped Orban uh, to to win the 2018 uh, elections with two-thirds majority. I think they will uh, uh, try to come up with, with, with something similar. Now, the problem, the big problem for the government is the pandemic. 
and they were completely unprepared for the for the pandemic. They didn't do as badly as let's say Trump, but uh, they they aren't doing particularly well. So populists in power are not particularly well in managing things, which would need you know some degree of respect for technocratic expertise, and that's not really the the area of of uh, Orbán type uh, national populists. So they like fighting migrants, but they don't like actually solving problems. And, and the country is facing serious social and economic tensions now because of the pandemic. And the popularity of, of, uh, of Fidesz has been declining in the last six months. And in fact, they are now at the level where they were in 2012, which was basically the last time when the opposition had a chance to win uh, at the national election. Uh, so the first term, 2010-2013 term, uh, when, when in 12 and 13, Fidesz was relatively unpopular again because of mostly of, of the unpopular upward redistributive economic policies, the same policies that they are pursuing under the corona pandemic, uh, making just the poor poorer and, and the rich richer. That's, that's, that's the thing that they do. And it's amazing how they could uh, get away with, with, with this, basically, socialism for the rich and capitalism for the politics. Well, I mean, it, it is similar to the to the Trump playbook. Um, you know, if you actually look at policy delivery in the United States over the last four years domestically, it, it was a classic Republican um, platform, but, but, but with this working, white working-class rhetoric coming from the president. So exactly, sort of, yeah, yeah, similar, similar approach. Uh, so I, um, I think, yeah. I think if, if if I may just add one 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 more like uh, thing uh, is is I think Orban is just one representative of this global tendency. Trump was was another one of a, a national populist hybridization of of neoliberalism. So you you, you have this very you know. In, in American terms, uh, Republican policies, uh, but because they don't work in the same way as they used to work, let's say in the 90s, you need some kind of national populist embedding of, of the same neoliberal policies that favor the economic elites. And I think this is what we see under Orban in Hungary. This is what we saw uh, under Trump. But I, I think the UK resembles uh the same constellation to, to a certain degree. Um, yeah. and so you can see see, see this uh, populist hybridization of neoliberalism in, in, in many countries around the world. And you, you say in the book, um, you say the importance of the EU as an anchor actually waned once Hungary was in. You know, once, once they were inside and embedded, it, it became less important to, to domestic politics. Is that still the case? And do you think that, let, let's say, as you said uh, earlier, let's say that um, Fidesz does carry out more illiberalism over the next year and a half to try and prevent the opposition from winning, and the EU actually does respond in some kind of force, would that have an impact on these kind of working class voters who might worry about the, the, the loss of uh, uh, fiscal transfers or, or that sort of thing? Or, or, or is the EU seen as a paper tiger? Um, I, I, theoretically, the EU could have power over Orban. 
as you know, just go back a few years in time in Greece when the Greek people voted against austerity under the Syriza government, uh, the EU uh, and the Troika made, made sure that basically the, the Syriza government uh, has to bow to, to, to the powers that be and either uh, uh, change course or, or, or change government. That was uh, the only option for, for Greece. And... Uh, um, you know, and it was the financial power of, of EU elites, especially the European Central Bank, used to basically pressurize uh, 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 Greece. Uh, and it was very powerful and very effective. Not that I liked it, but, you know, if the elites want to achieve something, they have the tools. The only question is whether they, they prioritize democracy and democratic norms to the same degree as they prioritize financial interest and austerity. And sadly, it appears to me that, you know, EU is much more about financial integration and, and economic interest than, than about uh, economic, uh, political integration and, 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 and democratic interest and democratic values. That's, that's a very sad story uh, that we had to learn uh, um, under, you know, during the past... Uh, few years concerning Hungary, where it's mostly only rhetorics. Uh, and, and this is changing to a certain degree recently with the, the tying of EU funds to uh, rule of law conditionality. But then again, Orban managed to make very important concessions. So uh, most of the democratic uh, backsliding dimensions are unrelated to, 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 to EU funds. So uh, the media issue, uh, parties, uh, local governments, all the things that make Hungary a non-democratic country are not part of this rule of law deal. The rule of law mechanism only concerns the the way EU funds themselves are spent. So basically, whether there is corruption involved in, in the way funds are spent or not, that's, that's, that's basically the rule of law mechanism. And even this watered-down mechanism has been postponed uh, after 2022, so which is basically the fourth election uh, that Viktor Orban will be able to face without any significant sanctions from the EU. And, you know, should he win again? And even despite of the current crisis, uh, he still has, a, I think, a better chance of winning than the opposition has. Uh, he, should he win again, then, you know, it's already, <laughs> he's been already in power uh, for quite a long time, two decades, and that's already... You know, a lot of things can happen under uh, that, that, that much time. And uh, he, again, will have four years to, to continue restructuring uh, the, the fundamental institutional landscape of the country. So, uh, you know, I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but, but this, 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 is, uh, this is my rather negative uh, reading of, of uh, the role that EU elites played. But it's not really EU elites, it's themselves, because the parliament or the commission uh, is a different player. And, and, the, and, and it's really the European People's Party 
and especially the German conservatives that are able to block decisions in the European Council and also partly in, in the European Parliament. But it's mostly the worst things are happening in the European Council and there the European People's Party and their way of harboring Orbán. That's that's just the you know that's that's just very sad and disillusioning story about basically economically German investors uh, winning uh, under Orban. They don't really care about democracy. They don't really care about authoritarianism. As long as there is financial stability, austerity, Europe's lowest taxation, uh, they don't really bother what politically happens in the country. Okay, well, uh, before we finish... Um, I've developed a short, short-lived tradition to ask my guests to choose a book they recommend, any book they like. What, what did you choose, Gabor? So my choice is uh, a book about uh, the political economy of health. Uh, as I mentioned previously, I think this is a, a very powerful way to capture the lived experience of economic change. And this is a book by Anne Keyes and Angus Deaton, Deaton being a, a Nobel laureate economist and, and his wife and case, they wrote a book titled Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. And it's about uh, the rising mortality rates of working class Americans and the declining life expectancy of working class Americans uh, over the past 20 years. So if you want to pick one measure which shows that there is something fundamentally wrong with the way the economy is structured in in the US is I think just look at this like normally life expectancy should increase uh, but it's decreasing for working class Americans which is I think a very tragic uh, story showing that this there is something fundamentally wrong uh, basically an existential crisis of this kind of liberal capitalist model and at one point they also mention the post-socialist mortality crisis that hit Eastern Europe, uh, although don't really get into get into the details, uh, but I think uh, the parallels are, are 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 obvious, and not just in terms of increased death rates in the nineties in Hungary and increased death rates over the past two decades in in the U.S., but also in terms of its political implications. You know, Trump was much more popular in areas with with elevated death rates. And we don't have the same uh, uh, calculations for hunger in terms of mortality and Fidesz popularity in, 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 in 2010. But we know that it's the same deindustrialized uh, areas where working class people switch their religions from, from the Socialist Party to, to Fidesz that, that were all the same towns that experienced the biggest increase in, in mortality in the right. And this also, this, this also, you know, suggests what the kind of policies could be to both to improve uh, the lives of people, like fundamental economic changes, reducing inequality, increasing economic security, which would not only allow, uh, you know, improved quality of life and, and improved life expectancy, but this is, I think, crucial also to fight populism. So the health of people and the health of democracy are, I think, intertwined. And that's one of the biggest lessons of this book and, and also Hungary's story. Thank you. Good choice. Um, today I've been talking to Gabor Schering. 
about his Retreat of Liberal Democracy, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Gabor, thank you again for joining the podcast. Thank you very much.